All right. Mic check. Everyone hear me? Yep. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the session Injections, Nerve Blocks, Pumps, Spinal Cord Stimulations. Everyone should be in Nolita 3 this morning for this session. And I'd like to get started now and um, welcome up to the stage Dr. Paul J. Christo. Okay, well, thanks so much for having me. I've designed this talk for primary care doctors and for primary care practitioners primarily, so uh, I ha you know, there may be information that's too advanced, uh, and I apologize for that. I tried to modify it based on last year's presentation. So in terms of introduction, I'm an associate professor in the Division of Pain Medicine at Johns Hopkins, and I formerly directed our pain treatment center and our pain fellowship program. Uh, the disclosures are listed. Uh, certainly the presentation may contain, and probably does contain, uh, references to off-label or investigational use of products. <clears throat> I have three learning objectives for you for this presentation. The first is to identify patients who uh, may benefit from interventional procedures. The second is to recognize procedural interventions for spinal pain, and I listed some for non-spinal pain too. And third, to describe patients who can benefit from neuromodulation therapies. I think that it's important for the primary care audience to understand a little bit about spinal cord stimulation, peripheral nerve stimulation now as well, um, and then some intrathecal pump therapies because I think that you're at the forefront of seeing patients who have pain and if you feel like they may benefit, then you can refer them appropriately. Well, there's no question that we have this dual public health concern now. We have 116 million Americans who are suffering from chronic pain, and then we have the opioid epidemic. And I think that what we're seeing right now is, uh, if you look at the scales, a preponderance of interest in the opioid epidemic, right? Opioid-induced um, respiratory depression and associated deaths and overdoses. And that's a concern, no question about it, but I think what's happening, in, at least in terms of the media, <clears throat> is that we're not hearing as much about untreated chronic pain, and chronic pain remains under-treated, untreated, and a significant public health problem. So I think in time, I'm reading more and more in the literature about some of the problems associated with the downward pressure on us with respect to prescribing opioids. Uh, so I think that we may, seen, may see the light turn colors uh, back to an interest in focusing on how to treat chronic pain um, and how to best treat it and that we have a lot of people who are suffering. So I th the CDC guideline, you know, back in 2016, has put a lot of downward pressure on the prescription of opioids. But what it did do was list their emphasis on non-pharmacological therapies and non-opioid therapies for the treatment of chronic pain. And I want to talk about some of those. I want to talk about the non-pharmacological therapies, because I think we're going to see more and more of those of interest for patients and perhaps for insurers, providers. What are listed there are procedures. Others as well that I've listed, you know, exercise, weight loss, CBT, that is cognitive behavioral therapy, and sleep interventions. But, you know, they talk about, the CDC guideline talks about procedures. Specifically, they talk about intraarticular steroids for rheumatoid arthritis, for osteoarthritis. They talk about subacromial bursa injections, for example, for rotator cuff disease. And they talk about epidural steroid injections, and they talk about surgery, believe it or not, uh, surgical interventions for decompressive problems. Well, historically, the 20th century was a time when we saw a lot of advances in procedural interventions 
for pain. Uh, many analgesics were developed at that time, NSAIDs, certain opioids, synthetic, semi-synthetic opioids. Uh, spinal and epidural anesthesia was advanced at that time and developed. And we, we had a lot of techniques that were developed for not only acute pain, but then for the application of chronic pain conditions. Intrathecal use of medications began in the 1980s, so it wasn't really that long ago, frankly, when intrathecal opioids, intrathecal um, bupivacaine, lidocaine, for example, was used um, for spinal anesthetics. But then we had, in the 1980s, the development of intrathecal pain pumps that contained small doses of local anesthetics, or opioids, for example, that could be delivered in minute doses to the intrathecal space for pain control. And then spinal cord stimulation. I mean, this is such a burgeoning field, it's remarkable. The growth is extreme. That's why I want to talk about it near the end of the presentation. But, you know, the first stimulator was implanted in 1967, and it was by a neurosurgeon named Sheely, who placed it for a patient who had bronchogenic carcinoma and intractable pain. And it was reported at that time that even though the patient just lived, I think, maybe a couple of weeks or so after the implantable device was placed, that he had extreme degrees of pain relief from the stimulation device. Well, today, my God, we have six, I think, different spinal cord manufacturers. Now, two manufacturers of peripheral nerve stimulators. So we've come a long way from 1967. Well, why do we do injections? I mean, I think that there are four reasons for it, typically. Th for their therapeutic value, uh, for the diagnostic value. I mean, you know, it can be difficult to call out what the etiology of chronic pain is. So the anesthetic blocks can help us determine the source of pain. For example, think of low back pain and think of the numerous possible etiologies of low back pain. I mean, low back pain can be due to muscular disease, muscular pain, or it can be due to facet joint disease. Herniated nucleus pulposus, for example. Dysdegeneration. I mean, it's difficult to tease some of these things out. So the anesthetic blocks can be helpful in helping in diagnosing uh, chronic pain conditions, or at least the pain generator. They're useful for prognostic value as well. I mean, so for example, if you think of the facet joint blocks that we do, I mean, those are done for their prognostic value for the purpose of determining whether patients are candidates for radiofrequency ablation, radiofrequency denervation. And then there are certain expectations, certainly, that referrals, uh, referral sources have of us when we perform injections, and patients as well. I mean, sometimes patients feel like, gosh, if they just have one injection, that it's going to take their pain away forever. And it rarely does that, unfortunately. Uh, but it can make a difference, along with other therapies. And I'm not saying that you know procedures are the be-all and the end-all of pain control. They're not, but they are useful. And I think we have a good evidence base for several that we, that we use. Well, let's talk about low back pain, because that's one of the top three pain conditions. And the etiology of low back pain can be multifactorial. Facets, as I mentioned before, sacroiliac joint can cause low back pain. The muscles can cause it. It can be neuropathic from herniated nucleus pulposus, for example, or from stenosis, central canal stenosis or neuroforaminal stenosis. Let's talk about epidural steroid injections because they're frequently performed and the evidence base for them. Well, the indications for epidural steroid injections really are for radicular pain, so keep that in mind. Shooting pain down the arm, down the legs, um, across the chest, for example. Uh, the source can be, is often nerve root irritation or compression from a narrowed um, nerve or narrowing around the spinal cord, and that can be due to stenosis from bony disease. It can be due to herniation of the discs. It can be due, to, you know, it can be due to surgery. Frankly, failed back surgery syndrome. Well, the approaches I want to go through are just uh, several. I mean, there are several approaches to performing epidural steroid injections. 
Most of these are still performed under fluoroscopy um, and proceeded with radiographic contrast. Well, here's a picture of the lumbar spine, just to put things into perspective. Uh, what you see here is the, you know, the dural tube, and then you can see the ligament and flavum, and that's what we penetrate when we perform intralaminar epidural steroid injections. We go through the, inner, the ligament and flavum to access the epidural space. You can see the facet joints here on either side, spinous processes, and the spinal nerves, the nerve roots. Well, when the disc herniates, it can cause extreme pain. Now, when the disc herniates, it can cause, it can be due to compress, compression of the nerve root, or it can be due, due to chemical pathophysiology. In other words, the disc doesn't always compress the nerve, leading to ridiculous symptoms. Rather, uh, inflammatory mediators that are generated, that are released from inside the disc from the nucleus, can leak out and irritate the nerve. And that in itself can cause radicular pain down the arm or down the leg. Here's an MRI. I wanted you to take a look at this because this is an MRI of what the disc herniation looks like, just in case you haven't had a chance to see what that looks like. What you can see here on the images in the center, you, you see the right in here is the disc. And this is an L5S1. It's an axial view, L5X1. And what you're seeing is you're seeing the disc herniate off to the left. So here's the left-hand side. And see these little dots here, these little black dots? Well, those little black dots are the L5 nerve roots. So in this case, this patient presented with lumbosacroradicular pain in an L5 distribution on the left side, left buttock, left lateral thigh, lateral leg, into the lateral aspect of the foot. Why? Well, she had an L5-S1 compressive disc herniation. This is a great uh, image, too, because I think it points out the facet joints. So you can see the facet joints here. Sorry, I can't really show you on the left-hand side or my left. But you can see the large facet joints bilaterally on either side of the, what's in the center here is the spinal cord of the cauda equina. So you can see the joints. They're pretty big. Inside the joints, you can see synovial fluid because they're true synovial joints. And you can see the paraspinal muscles as well. Well, when we perform the interlaminar, right, inter is Latin for between, it's between the lamina. So these are often performed in the cervical spine, thoracic spine, lumbar spine. And we use a needle, we penetrate the epidural, uh, the ligamentum flavum using a loss of resistance technique. And once we access that space, we then inject contrast, and then we inject some steroid, local anesthetic, and saline. Now there are variations in what practitioners inject, but Suffice it to say that it's some combination of that. Now, note, too, that there's an epidural venous plexus there. So sometimes we get into, you know, when you, when you penetrate the flavum and you're before you inject, this is, one of the reasons that we, this is one of the reasons that we inject contrast beforehand because we want to make sure that we're not injecting into the venous system. Um, now, this is an interesting approach. The caudal approach to the epidural space I use not too infrequently because, you know, if patients have had spine surgery, like, so suppose they've had um, laminectomy and fusion. Well, you can't enter the lumbar spine where they've had fusion. I mean, I guess you could, but it's a bit dangerous because the flavum doesn't exist anymore. Right? The surgeons go in, and as part of the laminectomy, they remove the flavum. So there's nothing there. There's no loss of resistance. So in those patients who have you know, low back pain, shooting leg pain, this is a great technique because you can access the epidural space from the tailbone area. They lie prone, you insert a thin needle uh, and access the epidural space at the caudal level, inject contrast, inject larger CC volume, maybe 10 CCs, who knows, 12 CCs or so, of a mixture of saline, local anesthetic, 
and steroid, and it bees the sacral nerve roots. And you could often actually get it all the way up to L5, sometimes L4. Now, you can perform this in the neck as well. You know, the, everything is compact in the neck, and it's a bit more dangerous than it is in the low back, as you might imagine. So, you know, still though, the, the patients who have neck pain, shooting arm pain, can benefit from epidural steroids in the neck. It's usually performed at between C7 and T1. The flavum is the most consistent at that level. Uh, but you can perform it at higher levels too. So it's a similar process. Uh, the needle's smaller, uh, and, but you just, sometimes the accessing that space is a little trickier because it's harder to sense and feel that loss of resistance in the neck compared to the low back. Gosh, I think probably in the 19, late 1990s or so, uh, this transforaminal approach was advanced. And you might hear practitioners talk about the transforaminal approach to the epidural steroid. And what this means is that we're, we're targeting a specific nerve root. Example, think of that example before, that patient who had lumbosacral radicular pain, L5 down the left leg. Well, instead of doing the interlaminar approach, which can be helpful, we can target the specific nerve, the L5 nerve, nerve root. And we do that by uh, inserting the needle in a certain view under fluoroscopy such that we can see where that L5 nerve emerges and target that with the needle. We can access the epidural space, inject contrast, and then inject some steroid local anesthetic plus or minus saline in that location. This is a great teaching tool too. I've used this for the, for the fellows and the residents a lot because at least it helped me when I was trying to learn the anatomy uh, because it shows everything you really want to see about the spine, the lumbar spine anyway. You can see the annulus, here's the disc. So here's the annulus fibrosis, the nucleus pulposus is in the center. And then this is, the, this is an axial view, by the way. Here's the aorta, here's the lumbar sympathetic chain, which we target when we perform lumbar sympathetic blocks, actually. But here's the, this is an interesting, this is the, um, the cauda quina, essentially. So I think this is at L3, L4 or so. But what you can see here is the spinal cord. You can see the spinal nerve roots in the center. And then you can see the epidural space. Remember, the epidural space is just not posterior. You know, it's anterior as well. I think we forget that or the trainees forget that. Um, and when we access, when we place the needle along the nerve root, we typically, now the, the solution travels anteriorly or posteriorly. But, you know, at one point we felt like, gosh, maybe the transforaminal approach to the epidural steroid was more effective than the interlaminar approach because if you can imagine, you know, here's the disc, it's herniating posteriorly, it's herniating this way, right? So you're, if you can get the medication that is the steroid closer to the area of disease or herniation, that that, in fact, may have better outcomes. So, and, and the DRG, the dorsal root ganglion, is close to the, I mean, we're really targeting that very closely with the needle insertion along the nerve root. Um, and this is the spinous process here. Here's the flavum, this sort of V-shaped structure here. And then these are the, this is the multifidus muscle and the paraspinal muscles. So keep that in mind when, you know, I talk about the transfemoral approach to the epidural steroid. Who are the ideal candidates for ESIs? Well, think again, just keep in mind, if you see patients who have radicular pain, now, one of the questions that comes up is, well, you know, what if patients don't really have truly radicular pain, right? Because the true radicular pain is below the knee. And gosh, I see patients who present with low back pain, shoots down the buttock, and then it just reaches the knee. <laughs> it doesn't go beyond the knee. So it's not typically, you know, by definition radicular, yet I feel like, based on my experience, uh, that those patients can benefit as well. So keep that in mind. But essentially, it's radicular pain. 
Those are the ideal candidates. Um, radiculopathy from herniated nucleus pulposus, shorter duration of pain versus longer has a better prognosis, shorter meaning less than six months, more leg pain than back pain, no psychological overlay, and that's rare. I don't know, you know, this is based on a study, but I think in most of the patients that I see, you know, there is psychological, it hurts, you know, and if you've had it for several, if you've had pain for several months, well, boy, you know, it does lead to depression because it changes your life. So, you know, I think this is more related to significant sort of psychological overlay. Um, if you're younger, you have better outcomes, and if the pain is intermittent versus patients saying, gosh, it's there 24-7, the outcomes typically are better. Also, you know, if, you, if patients have had surgery, spine surgery, now granted, we do a lot of procedures in those patients, but their prognosis isn't quite as good with epidural steroid injections. What about imaging? You, know, you saw that image before that I presented, L5S1 herniation. Well, interestingly, you know, you know, it doesn't, if, if there's a poor imaging correlation, those patients might not do as well. In other words, what if there's nothing that shows up on um, MRI of the lumbar spine, yet they report shooting pain in an L4 distribution or in an S1 distribution? And, and, you know, I have patients, and probably you've seen patients too, who present the same way. Well, they typically might not do as well when we perform epidurals because of the image correlation problems. Now, in those cases, by the way, you know, I might get an EMG nerve conduction test when there's a discrepancy between their symptoms and what the MRI displays. What about the data with epidural steroid injections? Well, we have quite a bit of data, actually. 60% of more than 40 controlled studies show short-term benefit. Uh, Usually, in my experience, and I've, I've written here, usually provide relief for six weeks or longer. I think it's longer than that, and I'll show you some data in a minute that suggests, you know, longer than that, so less than six months versus greater than six months. It, initially, we thought that the transforaminal epidural steroid injection was superior to the interlaminar, but I think that that's really changed as well. Uh, here's an example, too, of, if you can see this is under fluoroscopy, the needle's coming in around L5, and it's probably hard to appreciate with the lights, but you can see the dye spread along the nerve root and moving into the epidural space. That's what we see when we perform this particular procedure. Well, in terms of the outcomes, you know, some of them are quite good. Uh, steroids appear to speed the rate of recovery and return to function, for example, in one particular study. I think that both, you know, the interlaminar and transfemoral uh, approaches are about equal in terms of their ability to provide pain relief and functional improvement in those who have lumbosacral radicular pain. So keep that in mind. There's strong evidence for short-term efficacy, that is, less than six months, and moderate for long-term efficacy, that is, greater than or equal to six months, in helping to reduce pain and improve disability for lumbar disc herniation. Now, interestingly, there was a, I think it's a retrospective study in 2016 that demonstrated that, boy, these epidural steroid injections may prevent the need for surgery. Isn't that interesting? I mean, and pretty remarkable. These are patients who had sciatic-like symptoms for several months, and they performed epidural steroid injections in these patients, caudal, interlaminar, transfemoral. What they determined in this particular study was that the epidural steroid injections reduced the need for surgery in 80% of the patients, which is pretty remarkable. So I think, you know, the injections have to be targeted to the right patient and not performed, you know, every two weeks, for example. But if you do it, if you do the injection, if we do the injections in a reasonable way for the right patient, they can be quite effective. Let's now talk about the facet joints. This is another cause of low back pain.
These are true synovial joints, as I mentioned before. There are medial branches that provide sensation to these joints. They're called medial branches. So you may hear the term medial branch blocks. That's what it means. So we're not really injecting into the joints much anymore. This was done in the past. Some practitioners still do it. You can inject into the joint itself and deposit a little steroid into the joint for pain relief. However, once the neuroanatomy was worked out, we now target the medial branches. They're small little nerves that provide sensation to each joint. The purpose of the facet joint is to prevent or help uh, combat the shearing forces of the spine. And it helps the discs too resist the compressive forces that we place on the spine. The prevalence varies. The prevalence is actually highest of facet joint disease in the neck and then it's, a, it's as high as 50% in the neck, 45% uh, in the thoracic spine, and 15% in the lumbar spine. I wanted to show you some pictures of the anatomy of the facet joint. Uh, hopefully you can see some of it, but essentially what I'm trying to show you here is that the joint exists here, and on MRI, it's right here and here, here and here. This is a little harder to appreciate than the other slide I showed you, but there's synovium inside the facet joint. You have, uh, when you think of what's innervating this, you think of the neuroforamen and the nerves that emerge from that. You have a primary dorsal ramus. And then the primary dorsal ramus branches into three nerves, the intermediate branch, the medial branch, and the lateral branch. And we're focusing on the medial branch for these injections. Patients will present with sort of more deep aching pain, typically on either side of the spine or either side of the neck. If patients have had whiplash injury, the facets are often involved. The joints can enlarge and cause pain. Spine surgery can cause facet joint pain, especially in the lower back. <clears throat> the approach to these is under x-ray guidance, typically, a little bit of local anesthetic is deposited along the medial branch, maybe half a cc, for example, as a prognostic test to see if patients derive relief from it. <clears throat> I wanted to show you here some um, referral zones of the facet joints. So the top slide shows some, the fact that you know, if you have facet joint disease in the low back, it might refer to the buttock. And look at the neck. I mean, these are C2, 3 are the, are the facet joints in the neck, 3, 4, 4, 5. I mean, you can see that, gosh, the facet joints can refer pain all the way up to the mid-occiput, inferiorly down to the entire portion of the scapula. And so patients, if they report pain in those areas, may be suffering from facet joint disease. These are referral zones for lumbar facets. It can be very focal, paraspinal, for example, or it can actually refer to the buttock, the posterior leg, um, the posterior thigh specifically. The leg, yes, I don't really see that as much as I do the, the back, the buttock, and maybe sometimes the posterior thigh. By the way, we often don't see radiographic evidence of facet arthropathy. Uh, which is why we perform these diagnostic or prognostic blocks. So you might not see these necessarily on MRI. The, the blocks are performed with patients prone, and uh, the denervation is the same. It, it, basically, patients are in the same position. We're looking for about 50% relief after the local anesthetic is injected. And not just for five minutes, <laughs> either. You know, we're looking for sustained relief. I mean, the duration of the local anesthetic might be four hours, it might be six hours, so we're looking for that type of relief before we say or consider those patients candidates for the radiofrequency ablation, which then is performed subsequent to that 
80 or 90 degrees Celsius for about 120 seconds is what we're using now uh, in terms of ablating the nerve, right, denervating it to provide more sustained relief. Now, the nerves do regenerate, so it's, it's not necessarily going to last for six months, nine months, for example, uh, but the procedure can be repeated. This is just another example of the neuroanatomy at that level of the uh, spinal nerve emerging from the neuroforamen and the lateral branch and the medial branches. And the medial branches are what uh, we're targeting because those innervate the facet joints. Same thing in the neck. I just showed a quick picture here, slide of the, the neck. The, the nerves in the neck are very tiny, as you might imagine. I mean, they're small, and they lie along the articular pillar. But the process is similar there, too. Uh, that is, injecting a little local, small amounts of local anesthetic, maybe a third of a cc, half a cc, in the neck as a prognostic test. And again, wanting patients to report significant pain relief before we proceed to the denervation procedure. Well, is denervation effective at all? It is. Well-controlled studies have established the efficacy of denervation for the neck and the low back. There's good evidence for managing low back pain, both short and long-term relief. What about predictors of success for radiofrequency denervation? Well, if patients have paraspinal tenderness, less psychopathology, and if they have fewer levels that are affected, they tend to be more successful in terms of the denervation procedure outcomes than those who don't. If patients have long duration of symptoms, you know, what, six years or so, they typically don't quite do as well. Or if they've had previous back surgery, you know, that's tough too, because when the surgeons perform surgery, laminectomy, for example, fusion, I mean, you know, it's not that easy. Actually, frankly, when they perform that surgery, I'm never sure whether those medial branches exist anymore. They may just remove those as part of the surgery. So it can be tricky in patients with failed back surgery syndrome. Um, if they've had, if they use opioids, interestingly, right, they, they don't typically do quite as well. What about repeat procedures? You know, patients will say, boy, I got 50% relief for three months. I want it done again. Am I going to get the same result? Well, if you look at the data, yes, typically they do get the same result. 85% success in the lumbar and cervical spine with similar previous duration of action. Now, in my experience, that's a little high. I have to say that you know, not everybody gets the same degree of success, that is, the same degree of pain relief, and for the same duration. Why? I'm not sure. I don't know that we know that answer yet. But, but, but I think that in general, patients can get a good outcome the second, third time around. The complications associated with denervation are pretty minimal, less than 1% serious complications. Neuritis can occur, but we try to reduce that risk by injecting a little bit of steroid through the denervation needle after we perform the denervations. Let's talk about the sacroiliac joint now, because the sacroiliac joint can be another source of low back pain. This is the joint that's between the ilium and the sacrum. The prevalence, you know, I think this is underestimated by primary care doctors and by surgeons as a source of low back pain. It represents up to 30% of cases of axial lumbar pain below L5. So if patients have low back pain, L5 or below, it could be due to the facet joint. We typically see this more in young adults and older adults versus adults that are middle age. There can be intraarticular pathology or extraarticular pathology as well. And if patients have been through traumatic, if trauma, for example, motor vehicle accident, um, 
and such can lead to sacroiliac joint disease. So if in patients who've had sustained trauma or if you see patients who've been in, in a, a traumatic, uh, say, car accident and they have low back pain, the sacroiliac joint can be the source. Leg length discrepancies uh, are predisposing factors, scoliosis, previous back surgery, and pregnancy. The referral zones for the sacroiliac joint are typically the low back, very low back, L5, buttock, and the thigh. It's rare that you know it refers down to the leg or the foot, but in a retrospective study, some patients did report that. Indications for this particular injection, because this joint can be injected with a little local anesthetic and steroid. Pain in the lumbar spine, as I mentioned, buttock, back of thigh, groin, sometimes I really haven't seen that much. Usually it's very low back, posterior thigh. Keep this in mind. If patients have fallen, again, sort of had a traumatic event, sudden heavy lifting, prolonged lifting, and bending in their jobs, the sacroiliac joint can get stressed and lead to pain. This is approached usually under x-ray guidance, and uh, patients are on their belly. The needle is inserted in the inferior aspect of the joint. Contrast precedes the local anesthetic and the steroid <laughs> injection. Are they effective or not? Well, control studies have demonstrated short-term relief with these injections. We don't have as much evidence for long-term relief, unfortunately. <clears throat> However, similar to the facet joints, the sacroiliac joint can be denervated. Interestingly, right? So what, what we've learned through the, some studies is that the lateral branches, think of that nerve that emanates from the nerve root, from the foramen. So you've got the posterior primary ramus. Remember I said before, you've got three branches. Well, one is the lateral branch. That provides sensation to the sacroiliac joint. And we can target those lateral branches with radiofrequency to provide more sustained relief in those patients who have sacroiliac joint-related pain. I want to talk about here these two different types of radiofrequency ablation because there's traditional and that and, and a new form of radiofrequency denervation called cooled radiofrequency denervation. Uh, and the evidence is fair if we use cooled RF of those lateral branches in terms of providing relief or sustained relief for patients who have sacroiliac joint pain. Less evidence for conventional RF, better evidence that is fair for cooled RF. The difference here is that here, let me, oh, here's the picture. The difference here is this. If you look at the regular RF system, it's here, and it produces an elliptical type of lesion. But look at the cooled RF lesion. It's about twice the size, and it's much more distal from the tip of the denervation needle. So you're more likely to grab, if you will, or target uh, or treat the lateral branches that provide sensation to the sacroiliac joint because those branches are not really necessarily consistently located. So this provides at least according to the data right now, uh, more likely better relief and better long-term relief than traditional, conventional that is, radiofrequency denervation. I'm gonna branch off for one second. We talked a little bit about spinal pain. What about non-spinal pain? Well, I mean, that, that is a, you know, five different presentations, but I wanna talk about knee pain. I wanna talk about osteoarthritis briefly because I want you to know about this interesting procedure that uses cooled RF for patients who have chronic knee pain, osteoarthritic knee pain. Osteoarthritis is one of the top three pain conditions. And it, osteoarthritis of the knee affects a huge number of people, 250 million people worldwide. And it unfortunately can 
can occur after total knee arthroscopy, right? I mean, some studies show that 50% uh, report continued knee pain following knee surgery. That's pretty high. And it's not that easy, you know, in my experience, to treat patients who've had knee surgery afterwards. Um, and plus, you know, not all patients are candidates for knee surgery, so, uh, for total knee replacement, for example, due to age or comorbidities. There are current therapies out there, and I've listed several of them, intraarticular steroids, hyaluronic acid, topical NSAIDs. But what about those patients who aren't candidates for them or in whom they fail? Well, we can use that cooled radiofrequency ablation technique to help treat chronic knee pain because we can target the genicular nerves. There are three of them, typically, that provide sensation to the knee joint, the superior medial, superior lateral, and inferior medial genicular nerves. Well, we can block them with local anesthetic. If patients report good outcome, meaning 50% relief, you know, that's sustained over the course of the duration of the local anesthetic, well, then they're, I think they're candidates for the radiofrequency, cooled radiofrequency ablation of the genicular nerves. This takes a bit of time. It's an outpatient procedure, 30, 45 minutes or so. does require sedation because it's somewhat painful. You're, you're putting, you know, like an 18-gauge needle on either side of the knee. It hurts. So, you know, I, I usually give patients some sedation for this because it's hurt. It, it's much, the denervation is much more painful than the 25-gauge um, needles that I would place along the knees for the prognostic blocks. But if you look at the data so far, what does it show? It shows at least 50% relief at six months from the cooled RF of these nerves compared to just 16% relief with intraarticular steroids of the knee. It's pretty impressive. And at one year, some patients still reported at least 50% relief of their knee pain, along with improved knee function. So keep this in mind, cooled RF of the genicular nerves in patients who have chronic knee pain due to osteoarthritis. It's confirmed under x-ray. Um, usually great, I think it's two to four. Uh, and in patients who've had knee surgery who still have not generated adequate relief or improved function. Okay, I want to talk about spinal cord stimulators, the whole concept of neuromodulation, because it's exploding, and I'd like you to know about it, to have a, sort of a working knowledge of um, when to refer patients to practitioners who place these devices. Well, there are different components of this system, right? They all typically have a pulse generator, which is a battery. They have a programmer, like an iPhone, a remote control device that allow patients to turn the machine off, turn it off, um, turn it on, turn it off. It allows them to change the parameters of stimulation. For example, it allows them to change the frequency of the pulse width. <clears throat> and then there's a lead that we place. The lead is a little wire, and the wire has little metallic devices on top of it called contacts. That's what you're seeing here, these little metallic devices on top of the lead. And the current is discharged through those contacts to the spinal cord. <clears throat> now, there are typically two batteries available today. One is conventional that lasts about two to five years. The other one is rechargeable. I think all these systems now have rechargeable batteries. And those rechargeable batteries last anywhere from nine to 10 years, quite a bit longer than the conventionals. Who are candidates? Well, a lot of patients who've had spine surgery are candidates if they have low back pain and shooting leg pain, neck pain, shooting arm pain, for example, radicular pain, again, it's sort of similar to those who are candidates for epidural steroids, frankly. Neuropathic pain, shooting, burning, stabbing pain, radicular pain. The data tells us that those patients typically benefit quite, quite well and quite a bit from spinal cord stimulation. Now, 
in other parts of the world, these devices are used for inoperable ischemic leg pain, for example, or refractory angina. Not much in the United States. I haven't used it, frankly, that much for those conditions. I don't get the referrals. We typically don't get the referrals in the U.S. for those conditions. But suffice it to say that there is data on the efficacy of these devices for those conditions. Well, a trial is performed first, right? Under fluoroscopy, we place that little lead in the epidural space in certain locations. And then the, outer, the, uh, the other end of that lead or leads is exteriorized and placed on the skin. That's what you're seeing here in this picture. You're seeing it placed on the, it, you can't really see the wire, but it's there and it's attaching to this external device. And then that is attached to a programmer so patients can control it. The trial lasts for about six days or so. Patients use it and uh, we determine efficacy when they return. I've shown you what the batteries look like uh, in relation to a quarter. So it may seem big to you, but boy, when these first emerged uh, many years ago, the batteries were a lot bigger. I mean, they're quite a bit smaller now and getting smaller, which is positive for patients. So these are patients who are, the, the patients who are candidates for this are those who have failed more conservative therapies. We're looking for 50% relief from the test, right, the trial. And we're looking for areas that are covered by the paresthesia. When you turn this machine on, you feel a tingling sensation, except for one device, which is new and I'll talk about, that doesn't produce paresthesias at all. We're looking for improvement in quality of life. We're really looking for pain improvement. Is function any better, right? Can they walk more than they could before? Can they go to the mall, for example, where they, which they couldn't do before? Um, can they stand up and do the dishes, which they couldn't do before? Uh, is their mood changed? Do they get better sleep? Those are the types of um, those are the types of questions we're asking and we want to know. Psychosocially, you know, most insurers require that patients receive an evaluation by a pain psychologist or a psychologist before we implant these devices. What is the mechanism of action of these devices? It's pretty fascinating. You know, if you look at the animal studies, the mechanisms can be multifactorial. First, uh, the electrical stimulation may activate larger fibers, the A-alpha, A-beta fibers. They can, it may inhibit um, or trigger spinal interneurons, inhibitory interneurons, which help reduce pain and interrupt pain signals at the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. But it may also increase levels of norepinephrine and serotonin in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord to help suppress pain. We know from some of the animal studies, which I think is completely fascinating, that spinal cord stimulation is, can block and maybe reverse and in fact, in animal studies, reverse central sensitization. So when I said before that you know, this is something that's considered after all conservative therapies fail, there's a growing body of evidence, there's a growing feeling that we should offer these earlier on in therapy, not 10 years later, but earlier, because of this, because of the data, at least in animal studies. And remember that central sensitization is that, is that process of pain amplification uh, due to changes in the spinal cord that occur from neural trauma or from chronic pain conditions. And interestingly, spinal cord stimulation may also suppress pain by triggering areas in the brain that are important for pain processing. This is implanted after the trial in the operating room. It takes a couple hours, especially if you're in academics. Uh, and then, but we use fluoroscopy and then this is a picture of what it looks like, the lead looks like in lateral view and in AP view. I'm not sure if you can see it from there, but it shows you those little contacts, those metallic devices. And that's how you position the lead or leads in the epidural space. Well, gosh, there are six manufacturers of this device now in the United States. I've listed five here. They range from Boston Scientific, Abbott, Nevro, Nuvectra, Medtronic, 
and there's it's dim wave. Each one has a particular uniqueness. Uh, and I'm, I don't, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through all of their uniquenesses, but I want you to know how many exist out there. And I will talk about a couple of them that are interesting. One of them is this device that's manufactured by Nevro called High Frequency Spinal Cord Stimulation. The difference here is that this is the one I referred to earlier that doesn't produce a paresthesia. Patients don't feel anything. So when you do the trial, you're just looking for pain relief. You're still looking for similar parameters, right? Pain relief, improved function, improvement of mood, but they're not going to feel anything, which is sort of remarkable compared to the other stimulator devices that typically do produce a paresthesia. The data on this was fairly strong. Uh, there was a, fairly, a large randomized control trial that was done a couple of years ago that, that showed that this particular, this high-frequency stimulation better controlled back and leg pain compared to conventional, that is, low-frequency stimulation. What some of us feel with respect to high-frequency stimulation is that it may, based on this study, that it may better control low back pain than leg pain. Now, that's not always true, but it may, based on this information. And typically, low back pain is not easy to control with spinal cord stimulation. There's a miniaturized system, too. This is interesting. This is another device that does not use a battery. So the battery is not implanted. Instead, that little lead is placed in the epidural space. And then patients have to wear this, uh, like a receiver, if you will. You can see it here in a t-shirt. <laughs> and this communicates wirelessly with the wire in the epidural space to control parameters of stimulation. And yet, we now can tr specifically target the DRG. Interesting, right? I mean, the DRG, and I've listed it here, right? The dorsal root ganglion is slightly medial to the pedicle. It's an intraspinal structure. And it houses the cell bodies of lots of different primary sensory neurons. It's key in pain transmission and in modulation. And here's an actual anatomic view of what it looks like. Right there, you can see the DRG um, in a cross-section. So what, we've, what we can do now, and there's a, div a manufacturer that has produced a very thin, uh, small wire or lead that we can place along the dorsal root ganglion <clears throat> to specifically stimulate that uh, for pain reduction. It's, this particular device, then, is called dorsal root ganglion stimulation. It's approved in the US for complex regional pain syndrome, one and two. In Europe, it's approved for more than that. But in, in the United States right now, it's CRPS. Uh, you can target, so it's very little energy that targets just the sensory elements of pain transmission, not the motor, so there's an advantage there. Less CSF there, and there, ha there is some data that suggests that a year, uh, more patients who were stimulated with DRG who had CRPS ach achieved better pain relief and treatment success compared to those who had traditional spinal cord stimulator implanted for complex regional pain syndrome. What is the success rate? for spinal cord stimulators. This goes back to the information I sort of emphasized before. You know, instead of waiting many years to offer the device, if you have patients you think are candidates, offer it sooner. Because the data tells us that the success rate is 85% in patients who are implanted with spinal cord stimulators after or within or less than two years of the diagnosis of chronic pain compared to a success rate of just 8% in, 
if the device is implanted in patients who have chronic pain that has lasted more than 15 years. That's a big difference. So I hope you at least will consider this earlier you know, and referrals to those who provide this therapy earlier rather than later. Is it cost effective? It is cost effective at about two and a half years. Beyond two and a half years, the cost of conventional pain therapies outpace the cost of spinal cord stimulation. The upfront cost of spinal cord stimulation is naturally higher than conventional pain therapies. But after two and a half years, the costs at five years, by the way, is about eight or $10,000 different. That is, it's eight to $10,000 more expensive to be using conventional pain therapies than it is spinal cord stimulation. What are the conventional pain therapies? Well, visits to the physician, ER visits, imaging, MRI, CT, myelograms, PT, you know, that is physical therapy, chiropractic, all of these were considered in this particular study. I want you to know about peripheral nerve stimulation. This is an emerging area. Uh, there are two manufacturers of peripheral nerve stimulators now. One I've listed here, and you can see what it looks like in relation to the hand. So it's about 15 millimeters, or, uh, sorry, 15 centimeters in length. It's very flexible. It has those three little contacts at the end of it. Think of those metallic contacts that I mentioned before. Well, there are three at the end of this. This is placed with a needle along the length of an injured nerve. If someone has, for example, ilioinguinal neuralgia of chronic you know, groin pain or uh, testicular pain, vaginal pain, or labial pain, well, you can target that specific nerve with this small lead or another one that's been recently approved. So this is really used for peripheral intractable chronic pain, that is neuropathic pain, from post-surgical neuralgia or post-traumatic neuralgia. I place this in patients who've had and who do have post-stroke shoulder pain, interestingly. And um, you can target the axillary nerve. This is usually done under, um, well, it can be done under fluoroscopy, but more likely ultrasound guidance, targeting the nerve, using a needle, placing the needle and then, uh, near the nerve, and then depositing this particular stimulator along the length of an injured nerve and activating it. So it's actually um, can be quite effective. And the data on this, I think, is still preliminary, frankly. Uh, but at three months, at least according to one sort of preliminary study, patients reported significant pain relief. Um, and it was safe up to one year. I would say that I've, when I place this, I've placed this in patients who certainly report pain relief more than three months. I mean, I think six months or longer or so. So I think this is an interesting therapy that doesn't target the neuraxis, it doesn't target the spinal cord, rather it's targeting disease and injured peripheral nerves. All right, let me talk about implantable drug delivery systems, that is intrathecal pumps, and when they, they might be used and useful. This is a hockey puck shaped device. You can see the picture of it there. Uh, it contains local anesthetic or opioid or clonidine, for example, certain medications that are used uh, in the intrathecal space to reduce pain. This is implanted in the usually the right or left lower quadrant. It can be also implanted in the low back, but more likely in the right left lower quadrant <coughs> of the abdomen. And the catheter, which we can see right here, is attached to the pump. The catheter is tunneled subcutaneously from the pump all the way to the intrathecal space. And that's where the medication is delivered. Well, you know, I, I think that the, these systems 
are useful for patients who have cancer pain. I think that's, that's fairly clear. Now, we don't get a lot of referrals, unfortunately, still from um, the oncologists for this. I'm not sure that they fully understand or appreciate that this exists, but for cancer pain, it can be quite effective um, in terms of reducing opioid doses because we're using very tiny doses of opioids through the pump. Example, maybe two milligrams of morphine intrathecally, maybe five milligrams of bupivacaine, I mean, tiny doses. And it allows uh, the you know, GI tract to be bypassed in terms of side effects. Now, there are side effects associated with this, no question, there can be. But in those who have cancer, uh, you know, and it's intractable, and they're not getting enough relief from oral opioids or other therapies, uh, or, they're getting, or they're experiencing side effects from them, excessive sedation, for example, or nausea or constipation, well, this is a system that can help. You know, it's, over time, it's, this, the implantable drug delivery systems have been used less for non-cancer pain. Nevertheless, it still can be useful in select patients, those who have, have had spinal surgery and who have persistent low back pain, for example, or leg pain, can be useful. We use opioids. We use uh, bupivacaine, so local anesthetics, baclofen, quite useful for patients who have spasticity. Right? These are patients who have perhaps multiple sclerosis or who have had traumatic spinal cord injury and who have you know, bad spasticity and who really are not benefiting from oral baclofen. Intrathecal baclofen can make a world of difference. So the indications would be for refractory pain, not necessarily for patients who've you know, failed high-dose opioids. Rather, this might be considered before opioids or certainly before high-dose opioids. And the outcome often is more effective pain control with fewer side effects. So the take-home points are these. One, I think the CDC guideline certainly has moved many of us to away from the prescription of opioids. It lists procedural interventions for pain control. And, you know, frankly, it seems as though because of the CDC guideline, other policies that we may actually have, you know, fewer pharmacological options for patients uh, in pain. So I think procedures are up and coming. And it's important to know some of the data behind the procedures, that they can be effective, not necessarily for everybody, but for certain pain conditions. There's good evidence for short and long-term benefit associated with epidural steroid injections in selected patients. There's also good evidence for both short and long-term relief with radiofrequency denervation of the lumbar spine and the neck. Also, consider cooled RF for the knee. Consider cooled RF for the sacroiliac joint for more sustained pain relief. And consider neuromodulation therapies, specifically spinal cord stimulation for treating neuropathic pain. Shooting arm pain, for example. Shooting leg pain. Also intercostal neuralgia, I did mention that earlier. But you know, some patients have bad shooting pain that starts from the posterior aspect of the back, shoots anteriorly. I mean, I didn't go through all, there are other, you know, perhaps applications to spinal cord stimulation. Visceral pain is another one, perhaps, that's up and coming. But at least you'll have an idea for when patients might be considered for spinal cord stimulation. Intrathecal pumps, I think, again, if you have, if you see patients who have intractable cancer pain, aren't benefiting, refer them to a practitioner who places pumps. Uh, or if they just aren't benefiting from other therapies and have had if have horrible back, hor very significant back pain, or they have failed back surgery syndrome, for example, might be candidates for intrathecal pump therapy. 
And finally, there's an emergence now of peripheral nerve stimulation for peripheral neuralgias, which I think is intriguing and can be quite helpful and is minimally invasive. Well, listen, thanks so much for your time. <clears throat> Questions? Sorry, can you wait one second? Just, he's going to give you the microphone so everyone can hear. Thanks. Hello. Uh, so I've run into situations where uh, medial branch blocks or repeats of medial branch blocks were denied uh, on the uh, supposition that they are meant to last. More, that what, more than what they are intended to last. Uh, they, they, no repeats within two months or three months sometimes, yeah. uh, which really short circuits the process. And I'm wondering if, you, uh, if you've encountered that and what's your response to that. And one second question about the cervical medial branch block and whether you uh, ascribe to uh, uh, the method that uh, Dreyfus out of Washington uh, uh, describes uh, of, of approaching it both direct AP and in an obliquity to address the full range, uh, a contour of the, of the nerve. Um, I think that's about, oh, and one other thing. Uh, the sacroiliac joint, uh, if your region does not have access to cooled RF, uh, how do you present that uh, potential treatment to the patient? Uh, and do you recommend doing it without cooled RF? Okay, and how sure. do you go about doing that? Okay, sure. Let me take the last question first. Uh, you're right. So not everyone uses cooled RF. It's not always accessible. And in that case, I use conventional, conventional radio frequency and approach it that way. I mean, there is, there's limited data that that's helpful and effective. And frankly, that's what we did before cooled RF, before the advent of cooled RF. And, and you know, clinically and anecdotally, I've seen benefits. So I, I just do the conventional radio frequency of the SI joint. Um, let's see, the neck, uh, I don't do both, no, I don't. I just do, you know, one or the other. I try to, you know, based on that picture that I showed earlier of the elliptical lesion from conventional RF, I try to approach it, you know, as parallel as I can to the nerve. Uh, and then, let's see, your first question, yes, some insurers are denying it because they expect several months, whatever that may be, four months or three months of relief. And in that case, you know, I've tried to appeal sometimes I've appealed successfully, other times I haven't, and if I don't appeal successfully, then patients have to wait, sadly. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what else to do. Either, I mean, I guess in certain circumstances, I've injected a little local anesthetic and steroid around the nerves, you know what I mean? To, if, if, if the insurance company has denied the denervation, or you could also inject some steroid intraarticularly in those areas as well. They deny it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who else? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sorry. I'll get back to you. Sorry. We understand that there are several different ways to kill a nerve. You can kill it chemically with alcohol or phenol. You can kill a nerve with radiofrequency ablation. <clears throat> you can kill a nerve by inducing a frostbite with cryoneurolysis. Mm -hmm. How does a radiofrequency induce a cold 
lesion. How does it induce a cold lesion? Or yes, it it's does not cryoneurolysis. You're not inducing a, a frostbite on your right. nerve. No, it induces a hot lesion. It produces. I mean, this is usually done at 80 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Celsius, so it's quite hot, and it's the heat in this case that induces the lesion. Are you talking about the cooled RF? Sorry, are you talking about the cooled RF? I'm talking about the cooled yeah. RF. That makes no sense to me. You're right. It's a good question. And um, the physics of that, so cooled RF we used before we used it for pain, and I think in cardiology, for example, and um, in oncology. And it uses water that basically cools the surrounding tissue. This is what it does. It cools the surrounding tissue and increases the heat um, that is produced by the tip of the needle. So when I say cooled, it's sort of a misnomer. It's really not, you're not really producing a cool lesion. It's quite a, it's a hot lesion, but it prevents charring around the area outside the nerves, okay? That's the difference. Cryotherapy, you're right. You know, there's data on cryotherapy too. I didn't discuss it here, but cryotherapy can be quite effective in ablating nerves, not used as much frankly, um, as the heat therapy. But that also can be an effective tool. Yes? Uh, I have a couple of questions, actually one. Um, with the shortage of local anesthetics, we have a hard time getting lidocaine as well as marcaine. I think in our area, as our state, we couldn't get marcaine a uh, quarter percent or point five. What are you using for lumbar? Third, alternative local anesthetic, when those are two are not available, as well as intraarticular joint injections. So uh, you're saying bupivacaine is not available? Yeah, so 0.25 and 0.5, they have 0.75. Can you use lidocaine? I mean, lidocaine would be Let's say that's shorter. not short. That's, let's say that's also not available. <laughs> um, hmm. What about procaine? I, I mean, some people said ropivacaine. That's interesting. You could, uh, if that's available. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because ropivacaine, I thought, was more expensive than... But it's you're saying it's more from the pharmaceutical issue. company yeah. okay. um, uh, when they don't have it available, let's say, for a couple of months, yeah. you know, in short supply, and we I get it from major pharmaceutical companies, not I think from compounding. Mm -hmm. It's a good option. Repivacaine's a good okay. option, right. you know, in lieu of bupivacaine, that is, in terms of the duration. Yeah. Yes. Fewer. Yeah. I know. So the question is, what about thoracic radiofrequency denervation? It's much less frequent that that's done in the thoracic spine uh, than the cervical spine or lumbar spine. The data on that is not as strong, you know, and we don't have as much data on that as we do for the neck and the low back. So you're right, it can be, and I've experienced that as well, denied based on insurer. And in that case, you know, I, we can't do it. <laughs> There's no, I don't know what else to offer patients otherwise. I mean, you know, you could try to... It's, it's going to be the same problem if you try to inject inside those joints as well, in terms of the denial. So I feel like we're sort of at a loss there. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're right. We do. We're, I think we're lacking in the thoracic denervation studies, unfortunately. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I really appreciate you bringing the uh, cost information for the spinal cord stimulator. Uh, what are the, the kind of costs associated with some of the other procedures that you mentioned, or is there any uh, an analysis compared to conventional? 
Oh, good. So the costs of the other procedures. I don't know that I have, um, you mean like comparative data like I did with the stimulators? You know, great, that's a great question. And um, I don't know if I've seen anything recent that compares, for example, physical therapy to lumbar facet denervation, right? Because those are the studies that more and more were asked to do, these comparative data analyses. So I haven't really seen that, unfortunately. You know, yeah. Okay, is that it? Great, thank you.